0: Well, our kids, ages four to six, are welcome to join Kyle and Kyle's helper, Phyllis. I know her. (laughs) What are you guys studying this morning? Uh, Jacob and Esau. Esau. All right. Well, we want to pray for our kids and pray for our time together, so please bow your heads with me. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for this morning to gather together as a body of Christ to to sing and proclaim who you are and what you have done for us in Jesus. Lord, we know that so often we are consumed by thoughts towards this world, towards fears and anxieties, through just a notion of experience that can blind us to the gifts that you've given all around us. God, we know that from your word that you have good and perfect purposes in all things that that run counter to the way we, we think they ought. I mean, Jacob and Esau is a perfect example of that, and even what we're talking about this morning with regard to Pentecost. Lord, I pray that we would learn to see and to treasure your many gifts for us in Jesus, to be able to place them rightly in a correct order within our lives so that we might know you and love you and experience the faith that you have for us in Jesus, not in other things. Lord, for our children, I give them eyes to see the truth and beauty of Jesus. And I pray that for all of us as well. That we thank you that we can come together And we can sit under your word, and we pray that it would change us this morning. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Well, if you would, turn with me in your Bibles to Acts chapter 2. You can find it on page 909 in the Pew Bibles. This morning, we come to one of the most amazing and one of the most bewildering events in the history of the church. We come to Pentecost where the ascended Lord Jesus Christ sends down the Holy Spirit upon Christ's followers and the results are dramatic. There's this sound of a mighty rushing wind. There's these, this appearance of flaming tongues as of fire. The, the disciples begin to speak in all of these other tongues and you, you're left to wonder, what on earth does this mean? mean the crowd looks at that, they're befuddled, they're, they're bewildered, they're astonished, they're amazed, some mock, but they are all asking, what does this mean? And you know, We've been asking the same question from that day up until now. What does Pentecost mean? How are we to understand this? I mean, is this describing some unique point in redemptive history? Or or should we kind of understand what's happening here as, as more of a normal occurrence within the church? Can we speak in tongues? Should we speak in tongues? Are these revelatory gifts that, that they're going to talk about, like like dreams and visions and prophecy, or, are those things continuing today? Or are these people just, quite frankly, a little bit nuts, a little out of their minds? Or, or is this some sort of, I don't know, type of cathartic experience that allows the soul release and relief? This event, or at least experiences similar to this event, have, have been a source of both intrigue and excitement on one hand, but also skepticism and apprehension on the other. For both believer and unbeliever. So if you're here today, you you, you would say, you know what, I, I'm not a follower of Christ, and this whole thing that you're talking about has already got me scratching my head. Guess what? You're in good company. Right? This has caused many people to scratch their heads. In fact. I'll join you. Just let me know who you are. I'll come down and sit next to you. And we can scratch our heads together. Now, it's important to point out that um, that experiences like this one have popped up through the centuries of the church. So at different time periods, at different places, there's people that said, you know, we've had Pentecostal-type experiences. But they're relatively few and far between. In fact, the rise of prominence of this issue has actually come up late, within the last century. For the last 100 years, has this conversation really just kind of come to the forefront in the church? And just so you know, it appears in both Catholic streams and Protestant streams. It's not just for uh, Protestants themselves. Also, it's, it's given rise to a number of Pentecostal denominations. And so what that means is that people throughout the centuries have wrestled with this issue and they've disagreed on this issue as they thought about the implications of Acts chapter 2 for their lives. And quite honestly, that may even be true of us this morning. We might not all be on the same page with regards to this issue, but that's all right. We can still move forward. And the way for us to move forward is to not to get too caught up in certain aspects of this event, but to understand the whole event. And when I say the whole event, I mean Acts chapter 2 from verses 1 all the way through 47 in light of their immediate context, what has just happened, but also in in terms of the larger context, the storyline of Scripture. You see, we we need the Old Testament if we're going to understand Pentecost, and so, if we're going to look at the entire chapter, that's just more than we're going to be able to handle today. So we're going to slow down and take time. Actually, we was going to take this in a larger section, but as I was talking with some of you this week, I decided it was best to go ahead and slow down a little bit, see if we can answer some more questions as we go along. But we're going to be looking at this Pente- at Pentecost over the next few weeks, and as we do, I pray that we will grow in clarity and understanding as to what this means. We're just going to begin the conversation this morning that i hope will provide us clarity specifically on who and what the holy spirit is and why we he's doing what we see him doing here in acts chapter 2 verses 1 through 13 and what i pray will become evident to all of us this morning as we begin to look at the events and the response of this passage verses 1 through 13 is that the holy spirit rests upon believers empowering them to proclaim the gospel to all peoples or to shorten it a bit god's presence upon his people for proclamation to all peoples and so with that let's begin our study of pentecost by reading acts chapter 2 verses 1 through 13 it says when the day of pentecost arrived they were all together in one place and suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind and it filled the entire house where they were sitting And divided tongues as a fire appeared on them and rested on each one of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Now there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. And at this sound, the multitude came together and they were bewildered because each one was hearing them speak in his own language. And they were amazed and astounded saying, Are not all these who are speaking Galileans? And how is it that we hear each one of us in his own native tongue, Parthians and Medes and Elamites and residents of Mesopotamia, Judea and Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia, Pamphylia, Egypt and the parts of Libya belonging to Cyrene and visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabians. We hear them telling in our own tongues the mighty works of God. And, with, and, they, and all were amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, What does this mean? But others, mocking, said, They are filled with new wine. Now, this passage divides nicely into two parts. You've got the event of the Holy Spirit coming upon Christ's followers in verses 1 through 4, and then you have the response of the unbelieving crowd in verses 5 through 13. And so rather than trying to force this into a three-point sermon, I'm just going to keep it with its natural divisions, right? Verses 1 through 4 and 5 through 13. And it's okay. I haven't broken any of Brian Chappell's laws of preaching because there's a contrast here. I'm still all right, all right? So we're just going to be looking at those two points. In verses 1 through 4, first, we see God's presence upon his people. Now, I think that one of the reasons why we're so drawn to this text is just because of how tangible the whole experience is. I mean, if you think about the larger context, back in chapter 1, verses 4 and 5, Jesus tells his disciples, Look, I want you to return to Jerusalem and to wait on the promise of the Father. I am about to send, the, I'm about to baptize you with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. And then they do that, right? They go back. Before that, in Acts 1 8, Jesus is just about to ascend into heaven, and he tells his disciples, Listen, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. And then what happens next? He gloriously ascends right before their eyes. And what do they do? They obey him, right? They, they return back to Jerusalem just as he had commanded. And what we see him happening in verses 12 through 26 is they are preparing themselves to receive the Holy Spirit. And so they're praying, they're worshiping, they're studying, they're of one accord. They're just completely unified in, in, in what they're doing. Right? And then 10 days later, on Pentecost, verse 1 tells us that they were all gathered together. And I understand when they say all, that they're talking about that 120 disciples that we saw in chapter 1, verse 15, that all of these 120 were gathered together in one place, and then it happens, just as Jesus promised it would happen. And boy, did it happen, right? Right? I mean, Luke describes it in verses two through four, and suddenly, now we love that word, right? Suddenly, I don't have to wait for this. It's obvious, suddenly, right? The Holy Spirit comes upon them, right? There came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting, and divided tongues as a fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Now, putting the strange factor aside for just a minute, right? is this not exactly what we want our faith to be like? Right? Jesus promises us something, we play nice for 10 days, and then suddenly, boom, undeniable proof, unquestionable fulfillment that is palpable, that is tangible, that you can see and, and feel. I mean, they could hear it. It was the sound of a mighty rushing wind. They could see it, the appearance as of divided tongues of fire. And we can only assume that they could feel it as the wind filled the entire house or or as uh, they were sitting there and these tongues of fire came to rest upon each one of them Or, or as they were filled with the Spirit, you think you would be able to feel being filled with the Spirit. If nothing else, they could at least feel their mouths moving up and down as the Spirit gave them utterance to speak in other tongues. You know, I wouldn't have been half surprised if Luke had also thrown in a couple of other things, like it it tasted like honey and smelled like incense. I mean, the whole thing was that palpable. And is there not at least a part of us that envies that? A desire for such an immediate tangible expression or experience of faith. Jesus promises 10 days of obedience, and then it happens unquestionably. I mean, wouldn't the good fight of faith be so much easier if every time we gathered together, there was a sound like mighty rushing wind, right? I mean wouldn't wouldn't that help us to to go all in and to be fully committed followers of Christ or or even to believe in Jesus if every time Jesus followers gathered together something like this happened? I mean we we could crank up the ceiling fans. Might not be a bad idea. It's kinda of warm in here, right? We can we've got an exhaust fans up in the attic. We can click Flip those on, open up the windows, right? Even, even pump in maybe a sound bite of a tornado, but that's not gonna do it. Maybe we can play with the lights a little bit, get those smart lights to project flaming tongues of fire to go up and down on people, but that's not really gonna generate ecstatic experiences like this, are they? Now, there's a part of us that wants to tangibly experience faith, to go through something like that, or maybe there's a part of us that is afraid of something like that. The idea of that just kind of freaks us out. But at least we want Christ to suddenly and powerfully fulfill all of his promises. Am I right? Can we not just admit that this morning? Now, such a desire for such tangible experiences of faith, is not a bad thing. I mean, our faith is real. Our faith is tangible. But can we just be honest with ourselves and admit that there's a part of us that wants that, or there's a part of us that's afraid of that, or, or maybe both? And, and if we can admit to that, can we not also admit that those same desires or those same fears can color our understanding of this text and also what we hope to make our faith about? This is a big question for us to answer if we're going to look at this text honestly. You see, interpreters don't interpret texts in vacuums. We, no matter who we are, whether you are a believer or or not, we all come to the Word of God with backgrounds, with preconceived notions, with desires and thoughts and fears and longings and plans and judgments and hopes and belief systems, and they all color the way that we look at this text. And if we're not careful, it will color the outcome of what we do with this text. And so, for example, you might come to this text and really just zoom in on the tangible experiences of Christ's followers. I mean, it's there and it's real. Luke is not speaking figuratively when he talks about the sounds and the sights of it all, right? He's not exaggerating when he's talking about them speaking in tongues. This is real stuff. This really happened. But it's not the main emphasis of this passage. The emphasis is on the manifest presence of God. That the long promised, the long-awaited Holy Spirit has come to rest upon Christ's people. And the dramatic experience of this text is giving unquestionable, tangible, heavenly proof that it has finally happened. But you know, to grasp that, we, like these devout Jews who witness these things, we need to understand this event in terms of the fulfillment of so many Old Testament promises. We need the Old Testament to help us to understand Pentecost. For example, the word itself, Pentecost, some people actually believe that Pentecost was like a name they, they came up with to describe this event that just happened right here. Like, wow, that was amazing. What just happened there? I don't know. What should we call it? Uh Pentecost. Well, that's not what it means. Pentecost is a Greek word that means 50th. All right? And it's an alternative. Term for the feast of weeks, the day of first fruits that we read about in those Old Testament books, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. Like and what happens in the the Feast of Weeks is that God calls his people to honor him with the first fruits of their harvest. God has has blessed them with a harvest. They are to honor him with what they have received in in the very first harvest of the season. Okay? So What's happening here and calling it Pentecost, it's like us using the word Christmas to describe the birth of Jesus, right? There's no, there's no word Christmas in the Bible. We're just using an alternative term. This festival, the Feast of Weeks, or the Day of First Fruits, you see, took place 50 days, hence the name Pentecost, after the first Sabbath following Passover. And it was one of three annual pilgrimage feasts to Jerusalem, when all devout Jews and proselytes would have made their way to the temple to celebrate and to sacrifice. And that's why we see so many people from all of these nationalities being present there in verses 9 through 11. Okay? Now, if you're thinking to yourself, okay, that's great. Thanks for the ancient history lesson here, Chet. But what does that mean? Well, first of all, Jesus rose from the dead at the end of the first Sabbath following Passover. And here it is, Now, fifty days later, at Pentecost, and the Holy Spirit comes, and with him, the very first fruits of Jesus' harvest. This event set the stage for Peter to preach the gospel. And as Peter preached the gospel, the Holy Spirit brought about conviction of sin and a desire to follow Christ. And we are told in verse 41 that those who received his word were baptized and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. The very first fruits of Jesus' harvest. But there's possibly even more behind Pentecost. You see, some Jewish sources, uh, writings, and therefore, Jewish and biblical scholars alike have also seen that there's a connection between Pentecost and the giving of the law. You see, in the book of Exodus, the Jewish people are under slavery in Egypt until Passover, when God sent the angel of death to pass over Egypt, killing the firstborn sons of many. That that is what led to the deliverance, to the release of the people of. You know, the, the, the Jews that are there in, in captivity, right? And so that's the first Passover that takes place. And so for the next 50 days, they make their way to Sinai, to Mount Sinai, where through fire and thunder and lightning and wind and smoke, God gave his law to his people. But through the centuries, God promised that one day, one day he would make a new covenant with his people, and on that day he would write his law on their hearts, that he would put his spirit within them. And here we see it happening centuries later at Pentecost. You see, the new covenant has come in the blood of Christ, and God has kept his promises. He has poured out the Holy Spirit on these people, and they are given life. He has written. His law upon their hearts. We look at things like a mighty rushing wind, storms, fire, even descriptions of God's word being placed upon the tongues of His people. These were all images, theophanies, these these Old Testament descriptions uh, or visible manifestations of God's active presence with His people. And they're used dozens and dozens of times throughout the Old Testament used to describe God interacting with Job, or Elijah, or Moses, or Israel, or David, or Isaiah, or Ezekiel, or Daniel. Those are just a few examples. This is tangible evidence that God was there dwelling with his people. That he's not distant, he's not uninvolved. Instead, we see God the Holy Spirit coming to rest upon his people now, though, in ways that he never had before. You see, in the Old Testament, the Holy Spirit didn't rest upon everyone but only on select people for select purposes like kings or prophets or priests to enable them to do what God would have them to do. We also see through the Old Testament that the Holy Spirit would descend upon people for a period of time and then leave. You know, Bezalel, the guy that, that built the tabernacle, what's his job was done? Holy Spirit's gone. Or King Saul, Right? Anointed as king, given the Holy Spirit, prophesied, sinned against God. God took the Holy Spirit from him. Or you've got the elders in in Numbers chapter eleven; these elders who were appointed by by Moses to to help him out with judging the people, and and they were they prophesied once and never again. See, he worked differently back then. But something what what's happening here in Acts chapter two is different. He doesn't. Just rest upon certain people, but on all God's people. I mean, look at what it says in verse 2. The wind filled the entire house. In verse 3, it rested on each one of them. In verse 4, they were all filled with the Holy Spirit. And this is not, again, just speaking of the 12 apostles, but the 120 disciples that we saw from chapter 1, verse 15. Later, in, in Peter's sermon, he begins by quoting from the prophet Joel in verses 14 through 21. And and Joel foretold of the Holy Spirit being poured out upon all people, on men and women, young and old, slave or free, rich or poor. And his resting upon his people would not be uh, temporary, but it would be eternal. Because Romans chapter 8, verses 9 through 11 says, you, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if in fact the Spirit of God dwells in you. Anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to Christ. So if you, are, if you have Christ, you have the Holy Spirit. But if in fact Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the spirit is life because of righteousness. And if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. And that life that he's talking about is not just physical life. He's talking about holy life, righteous life, eternal life. And just to be absolutely clear, the Holy Spirit is a person, not an impersonal force. It's not an it. It's not a thing. He's a he. Don't be thrown off by the expressions of power, of, of, from, like the, the, this idea of wind or tongues or fire. I mean, Romans 8 has just told us that the Spirit of God, who is also the Spirit of Christ, dwells in believers. That dwell, that's a personal term, right? Wind doesn't dwell. People dwell. It says, if the Holy Spirit is in you, then Christ, who is personal, is in you. That's, again, in Acts, we've already seen that the Holy Spirit will come. Again, that's the idea of movement, but not just like the wind goes, the wind blows, but, but actually a person coming. Or, or we're told uh, in chapter, at the end of chapter one, we were told that, that the Holy Spirit spoke through the mouth of David concerning Judas. The Holy Spirit speaks. In Acts, we'll go on to learn that you can lie to the Holy Spirit, that you can test the Spirit of the Lord, that you can resist the Holy Spirit. It's kind of hard to do that with an impersonal force. I lie to you, wind. I resist you, wind. I'm going to test you, wind. All right? Uh, in Ephesians chapter 4, we're told that you can grieve the Holy Spirit. Anybody ever been able to grieve the wind? Instead, throughout Acts, we see him speaking to different people like Peter or to Philip or to the elders of the church of Antioch or to the council in Jerusalem or Paul and his missionary friends. You see, the Holy Spirit is not an impersonal force. He is the third person of the Trinity through whom we now have access to the Father in one spirit. And even that 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 uh, symbolism that was giving of the tongues of fire resting on believers is significant. Because you see, when, whenever God rests upon or sits upon, it is a display of his lordship as he sits on his throne, as he sits on the mercy seat, as he sits upon the mountain. It's a display of his lordship over that which he rests upon. And so when you look at what's happening here in, in verse 3 with the, the, the divided tongues of fire coming to rest upon believers, this is an indication of his lordship. Not that they have authority to name and to claim and to command the Holy Spirit, but that he is, has authority over them. Right? Recognize that he is the one that gave them utterance so that they could speak in tongues right he is the one who did that and though in this case we know that all of them spoke in tongues according to verses 3 and 4 this was not always his prerogative because if we took time to read 1 Corinthians chapter 12 we would see that the holy spirit doesn't give everyone gifts of tongues but distributes various gifts throughout the body so that the body could reach unity and become whole through their diversity The Holy Spirit is the one that distributes gifts and he does this according to the will and purposes of God the Father. And that purpose, as we're gonna see in a minute, is not to show who has great faith or to establish some two-tiered class system of Christians. Like, well, look at me. My faith is great because I can speak in tongues, but your faith is weak because you cannot and if you want to be mature in Christ, then you have to speak in tongues. Friends, that's not edifying. It's not helpful. It's not the point. And So we shouldn't look at this passage as a necessary requirement for salvation or at least for maturity. That's not why it happened. And so that may then lead you to ask the question, okay, well then then why right why was it even necessary in the first place i mean why couldn't they experience uh, their experience of conversion look m- much more like ours i mean you know without all of that wind and fire and tongues tongues nonsense i mean uh, but again this is to show that god had promised what promised what he had promised so long ago to dwell with his people, not just with his people, but in the hearts of his people, that this has now finally happened. That it was truly indeed good, as Jesus said in the gospel of John, that he go and depart and be with his father so that he can send the helper, the comforter, the Holy Spirit to us. This is indeed a good thing. You see, far more important than the expression of his coming is the clear indication, the sign that he has indeed come. These signs gave Christ's followers unquestionable evidence that they had received the Spirit. And that is what matters. They'd receive the Holy Spirit. Now, your experience may be nothing like their experience, and that's okay because that's not the point. I mean, who actually, think about it, who actually experienced what we're experiencing or or what we see them experiencing right here in this text? Mighty rushing wind, right? The appearance of divided tongues as a fire. Everybody speaking in tongues. I mean, how many people have experienced that? Not many. To my knowledge, basically everybody that's listed here in this text. And that's it. But what matters here is that you can see evidence of the Holy Spirit's work in your life. That's why it's so important. For us to have verses 37 through 47 to come alongside to understand this event in light of how it ends. The clearest evidence of the Holy Spirit's work in the lives of every believer is that we are cut to the heart because of our sin and we desire to follow Jesus. That we continually turn away from our sin and trust in the sufficiency of Christ's death and resurrection for us. That we desire to obey Him and respond in obedience by being baptized in His name and added to His church where we devote ourselves continually to the apostles' teaching and to the fellowship and to the breaking of bread and, and prayer to stand in awe of God and to love each other well to be united in one heart and mind as we worship together to receive food together with glad and generous hearts as we grow more more and more and more and more and more and more like Jesus. And as we do that, others see and they hear the gospel and they are added to their number day by day, those who are being saved. Friends, that is what matters that the Holy Spirit has come. And if you are in Christ, then you have received him. So don't think of yourself as less because you don't see these same experiences in your life. Look and examine yourself in light of this one simple fact. Do I believe in Jesus Christ and have I received the Holy Spirit? And so, why then? Why why the wind? Why the fire? Why the tongues? Well, that leads to the second point for the proclamation to all peoples. You see, Jesus had promised that they would receive power when the Holy Spirit would come upon them. I don't know about you, but I think big things when I hear that word power. And what will that power do? It will compel them outwards towards mission. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. Well, friends, it is possible that if they had received the Holy Spirit more subtly in ways like many of us have received the Holy Spirit, they would have just kept on waiting. Well, you know, I, uh, I'm i feeling a conviction about my sin and, you know, I'm believing in Jesus and a. Uh, I feel myself growing in love for him. I I long to read his word. I I love God more. I want to be around his people. I, I want to obey him, but I don't know. Maybe that's not it. But what happens here is undeniable proof. With the mighty rushing wind filling the house and the divided tongues of fire resting upon all so that they could speak in tongues Yo, they realized, now, now wait a minute. I know this. All right, this is a theophany. And they probably said that word too, right? Theophany, this is a theophany, just like I read about in the Old Testament. Like when God appeared to Moses or to Elijah or to Ezekiel or to Daniel or to Isaiah. This is what's happening here. You see, the guys were a little thick. They have proved themselves to be a little thick and so they needed a little help to kind of figure it out, right? This, God has this, this way of, of giving them a little kick in the pants of biblical proportion. And he has a way of doing that when he establishes new things. I mean, God delivered Israel from slavery in Egypt through plagues. But that wasn't always the way that he delivered his people from their enemies, was it? They walked through the Red Sea on dry land. God parted the the River Jordan for them to enter into the promised land. But eventually, they had to start learning how to build bridges and boats. I mean, think about Samson. The only guy in human history with superhuman strength, right? I mean, forget about tearing those phone books in half. I mean, this guy could rip a lion in half, right? Not even Jesus could do that. Of course, course he didn't really need to, right? Because he can raise the dead and walk on water and, you know, like die on a cross for our sins so that we can live with him forever. So he didn't really need to stoop to that level, but can't beat that. No, you need to recognize something though. God is not obligated to keep upping the ante. Oh, here's a new generation. Got to put more out there. Got to go big. Got to show them. Got to give visible manifestation. Got to keep going, keep going, keep going. And here's why. He's already gone all in with Jesus. You can't give more than that, than the one and only Son of God. This is just God's way of showing that to, to them and to the crowd of various backgrounds and to us to propel us forward on mission. This was not simply an event for the confirmation of disciples so that they could receive the Holy Spirit and be like, yes, I know, I'm in. Great, good for me. It was a Kickstarter for mission. Look at verse five. Now, there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. And at this sound, The multitude came together and they were bewildered because each one was hearing them speak in his own language. And they were amazed and astonished, saying... Are not all these who are speaking Galileans? And how is it that we hear each one of us in his own native language, Parthians and Medes, Elamites and residents of Mesopotamia, Judea and Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt and the parts of Libya belonging to Cyrene and visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabians. We hear them telling in our own tongues the mighty works of God. You see, God is doing a work here in this passage to make Acts chapter one, verse eight, happen. Providentially, he orchestrates this whole thing around the festival Pentecost so that devout Jews and proselytes, those are non-Jews who are converted to Judaism, from every nation, from many nations, just happened to be in Jerusalem at that very moment that he sends the Holy Spirit so that they can hear this sound of a mighty rushing wind and stand in awe as they see Galileans preaching to them in their own native languages. God is making this happen. And, And I want you to see this on a map, right? And so there should be one up here on the wall. Hopefully you guys can read this, all right? There in the center, lower center, you can see Jerusalem. You guys see Jerusalem? Is it on there correctly? I can't see it from here. So you're going to have to, I'm just assuming it's right. All right. Now, if you look to the right, there's Parthia, there's Medea, there's Elam, there's Mesopotamia. Moving to the west, there's Pontus, there's Cappadocia, Phrygia, Pamphylia, Asia. Rome is up to the extreme left, top left. Down across the bottom, you see Egypt, Libya, Cyrene, Crete is the island there in the middle, and then southeast of Judea is Arabia. And so these devout Jews and proselytes either came from, for this festival, or they were originally from these different areas all over, right? From from Southeast Turkey and places that are uh, like Italy, Albania, Greece, Bulgaria. They were from North Africa, Egypt, and Libya. Most, though, were from the Middle East, from what would be Turkey or Syria or Jordan, Iraq, Iran, Saudi Arabia. Notice there's very few Western countries that are listed there, right? And America apparently didn't make the cut. I don't know. And so just keep that in mind. You know, sometimes when you're speaking to people from from eastern cultures, they'll say, Well, you know, Christianity, that's a western thing. But see, we're 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 Eastern, you guys are Western, Christianity's a Western thing. We're like, No, it's not, it's a Middle Eastern thing. Right? It's just as close to you as it was to us, and they didn't have to cross any water to get to us or get to you, so there you go. Right? Now, this was, known, this was the known world at the time, okay? Every nation under heaven. Not that this is literally every single nation under heaven, but that it is representative of every nation that the ancient Near Eastern people of this time period would have known about. I also find it interesting, too, when you see how far it reaches, that when you finish Acts chapter 28, the, the apostles hadn't reached that far yet. So God is already making it possible for the gospel to reach further than what they were able to do by the end of Acts chapter eight. It's fascinating. Now these people, they've come to Jerusalem either as permanent residents or as pilgrims who were participating in the Pentecost feast who would then return home to these lands. But unbeknownst to them, God was bringing them together to propel the gospel message out into the world. All of these devout people from different parts of the Mediterranean and Middle East are in Jerusalem to honor God, not through Jesus, but through this Jewish festival. But their plans were interrupted as they heard this, this sound, this, this mighty rushing wind, and all of the Galileans speaking to them in tongues. And these tongues are real languages, This is not an angelic language. This is not gibberish. This is not the Holy Spirit giving the gift of hearing to those who did not know and follow Jesus. Because verse 4 makes it clear that the Holy Spirit had filled believers, giving them utterance to speak in other tongues. And these are real dialects. They're actual languages. Greek, Aramaic, like possibly languages like Parthian or Pahlavi or Akkadian dialects, perhaps early forms of Turkish or Phrygian or Demotic or Coptic or Arabic or Punic or Syriac. We don't know exactly what languages they are. But I think that Luke's early readers would have just because of the regions that were mentioned. But the crowds were emphatic about the fact that Christ's disciples were speaking to them in their own home tongue. Verse six says they were bewildered because each one of them was hearing them speak in his own language. Verse seven, aren't these backwood Galileans speaking? I mean, how is it that we hear each one of us in our own native tongues? This would be like some mountain man coming down from the hills and starting to speak Chinese. You wouldn't expect that to happen. Verse 11, we hear them telling in our own tongues the mighty works of God. And it's not about the tongues themselves, but about the fact that the Holy Spirit has now come and through His power, He is leaving no obstacle to the mission of God to bear witness to Christ. Not even languages. The Holy Spirit is overcoming barriers of culture and dialect to empower them to proclaim the mighty works of God. That is what matters. And in the process, what God is doing is he is temporarily reversing the curse of Genesis chapter 11, the Tower of Babel. Do you remember at Babel, mankind tried to exalt themselves to the level of God. They thought that they could live life without him, that they could reach God on their own terms, with their own wisdom, their own ingenuity, their own giftedness. They were trying to make a name for themselves. But as a result of their sin, God confused their languages. But here we see him gifting his people with tongues to temporarily overturn it. And I say temporarily because you do not see God's people moving back towards one dialect you would think that over these 2000 years if that was God's purpose to return to one language to completely overturn a completely correct babel that we would go back to one language but we didn't instead what we see happening is God's people laboring hard to learn languages and cultures to reach people from every nation under heaven but this gift of tongues was not to exalt man so that people can make a name for themselves friends that's the sin of babel instead tongues was given to leave no obstacle for the mission and to display the power of the gospel to save us from our sins the spirit gave tongues in that moment when the disciples were surrounded by so many nations to bring clarity not confusion to make the gospel more understandable not weirder did you get that Clarity, not confusion. This is why Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 14 that if any speak in a tongue, there must be an interpreter. Not that this is an angelic tongue, a different type of tongue that requires a special gift of interpretation, but that when the local church gathers together, just like we gather together, we all speak in one language. So if I got up here and I started rattling off Koine Greek for you, because I worked really hard, I've studied many years to figure this out, and I just kind of start spewing that to you, it's not gonna be helpful. Why? Because you don't speak that language, right? And that is why Paul tells us that speaking in a different tongue is confusing. It doesn't build up the church. And so unless someone can interpret what you're saying for the good of the church so that all can hear, then don't do it. Otherwise, it's confusing. It's self-exalting. You do nothing more, than, as he says, than speak to the air. It's actually better to speak five words with my mind in order to instruct others than 10,000 words in a tongue. Now, what's ironic here is that in this day and age, these devout Jews and proselytes probably spoke Greek or Aramaic. It's almost a guarantee that they spoke Greek or Aramaic. And so what that means is that these tongues were not completely necessary. And I think it's supported by the fact that Peter gets up and he begins to preach to the crowd in verses 14 through 40, more than likely in one language, there's no mention of interpreter whatsoever. And 3,000 people from these various nations hear and respond to the gospel call. But nevertheless, God is so gracious that he leaves no barrier in allowing them to hear the gospel by one or more of these 120 disciples who are present in their first language rather than their second or their third. I was just struck by the kindness of God to do that. You see, the whole point of them speaking in these native tongues was to give supernatural evidence as they proclaimed the mighty works of God. It showed the mighty works of God as they proclaimed the mighty works of God. These people who were there were devoted to worshiping God. They're devout Jews and proselytes. So what that means is they already knew a whole lot of the mighty works of God. They knew the Old Testament. They were there to faithfully observe the law, but that was not good enough. The mightiest work that they needed to understand was how the son of God took on flesh and lived a perfect life, how he died and rose again so that they might have new life in him, that they might be forever restored to God and to receive his Holy Spirit to dwell in them. That was the mighty work that they needed to understand. The Holy Spirit enabled the disciples to speak in tongues in this moment to shake them from their slumber of religious observance to hear the gospel message. So that speaks to us as well. We need to be shaken loose from our religious trappings, our observance, right? The things that we always do, because that's what good people do to recognize we too need to hear the gospel message. All by themselves, tongues just resulted in bewilderment and ridicule. I mean verses 13 14, uh, sorry, 12 and 13, Said, and they were all amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, What does this mean? But others mocking said, They were filled with new wine. And so at best, people stand amazed but are confused. What does this mean? And at their worst, they mock and ridicule. You are a drunkard. But either way, that tangible, evident experience that we so often long for was not enough. The one who is enthralled by the experience of what is happening all around him is still perplexed and has no idea what it means. The one who shakes his head in disdain at what the Lord has just done is no better than the other because he just dismisses it as a ramblings of drunkards and fools. And though sure of himself, he has no better idea of what has just happened. You see, neither camp is one that we want to find ourselves in. But the event, the experience, all by itself means nothing, only what follows. And that is the message. Peter will stand up and he will preach that what they are seeing and what they are hearing is the coming of the Holy Spirit as a sign that the day of the Lord is at hand. He will go on to proclaim that Jesus suffered and was raised according to the Scriptures and that despite the fact that we are all guilty of crucifying Him on that cross by the hands of lawless men, He is the exalted Lord of all and the one who has poured out all that they are seeing and hearing in that place. It was that message Not tongues, not the experience that cut them to the heart and compelled them to repent and believe the gospel. And friends, that is the same message that we proclaim today. The same Holy Spirit that rested upon those early disciples is the same Holy Spirit that dwells within each and every one of us who are in Christ. He is the one who changes hearts. He is the one who works according to his will. He is the one who equips us to do what God has called us to do. He is the one who empowers us for the mission. And it doesn't take theatrics, it doesn't take fire or tongues or wind to get us to share and to get others to hear. This is not a divine method of evangelism to basically bop them on the head with perplexing sights and sounds and once they're thoroughly confused about all that has just happened, to kind of slip in the gospel in the back door. Do you know what the divine method for evangelism is? It's God's presence upon his people for the proclamation to all peoples. You see, those 3,000 souls who were cut to the heart, repented of their sin, they received the Holy Spirit. They had believed the gospel. We're given no indication that they ever spoke in tongues. But you know, God used those tongues that were spoken to them. You see, whether they finished celebrating that Passover festival or that Pentecost festival and then went home, or whether they were dwelling there in Jerusalem and it was the rise of persecution in Acts chapter 8 that drove them from their homes more than likely back to their native lands, what we do know is that those native Languages, those native tongues that were spoken to them at Pentecost would be the same languages that they would use to proclaim the gospel in the power of the Holy Spirit in their homeland. Greek for Greek, Aramaic for Aramaic, Coptic for Coptic. See, it was never just about the event. But God's presence upon his people for the proclamation to all peoples. Friends, that is how it has come to us. You do realize that. Not through a wind, not through fire, not through a a tongue that we don't understand. But God's presence being upon his people for the proclamation to all peoples. Proclamation in the power of the Holy Spirit to all peoples that calls and equips us to proclaim in the power of the Holy Spirit to all peoples. It's the same. And that's what matters. We're gonna to continue to see this as we go along and looking at Pentecost and what it means for us. But for now, what matters is this. If you are in Christ, you have received the same Holy Spirit. Don't begrudge or doubt because you have not experienced something like what we see here. Don't think to yourself that this is what it means to have received the Holy Spirit and that you are somehow less of a Christian because you have not experienced something similar. That's just not true. That was never the point. They needed that because they they were a little slow and maybe we're blessed. We're not that slow. We can only hope. But not only that, It's not an end of itself for you to receive the Holy Spirit, to check that box off of your list. You're now okay. But it was always meant to propel us outward to others. So may we too be filled with the Holy Spirit to proclaim his glorious name to every tribe and every language and every people and every nation. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I I pray that, that if one thing would be clear to us this morning is that we have indeed received the gift of the Holy Spirit if we are in Christ. God, I pray that that is what would cause us to marvel and wonder and be astounded, not because we don't know what it means, but because we do know what it means. That we are now yours through Christ and you have called us to be your children and your ambassadors to others and i pray that we wouldn't think that we would need such marvelous displays in order to be faithful to be your witnesses because the holy spirit is not there to just shock and awe us with wonders but to lead us to follow Jesus. And Jesus preached the gospel to all nations. So Lord, help us to see and to cherish and to hope and to tell others of the gift that we've been given in Christ. It's in his name we pray. Amen. Amen.